Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 36. The book of Matthew, chapter 10, continued. As we continue today in our study of Matthew, chapter 10, there's a couple of important context items I'd, I'd like you to keep in mind. First of all, Matthew lived and wrote well after the events he's speaking about. He was not the Matthew, also called Levi, who was the tax collector and one of the original twelve disciples. So everything we read was written in hindsight for Matthew. He was not an eyewitness to any of it, so far as we know. Second, the disciples Christ was sending out were to go only to Jews and only to Jews living in the Holy Land. And while it's not specific about exactly which towns and villages they were to journey to, none of them would have been very far from home. Now one of the things Yeshua is doing is setting up some rules and some boundaries for the missionary work that the Twelve might perform, much of it based on the culture of the day, and perhaps perhaps the most significant aspect of it that is that they were to rely on the hospitality of a town or a village that they entered for everything they needed from, from shelter to food to protection. Now hospitality in that era for Middle Easterners was akin to a code of social etiquette and, and ethics. It wasn't part of the legal system, per se, but it was a highly virtuous and valued part of social custom that was frowned upon if it was ignored. Hospitality is something that travelers would ask of a household, usually of someone they did not know. Generally speaking, to deny hospitality without an exceptional reason brought great shame upon that household. Once granted, that traveler's every need was to be met and his safety assured, even if it meant the host putting their lives on the line. Now obviously, the way the culture of the New Testament operated at that time bears no resemblance to how Western society or or most other world cultures operate today. So in order to apply the principles of how missionaries are to be cared for with hospitality at the center of it, we have little choice but to adapt Christ's instructions into the realities of the 21st century. We ended after verse 15. After Yeshua had instructed the disciples to take with them little more than the clothes on their back, then to go out in pairs, He tells them that when they come into a town, if that town rejects them, meaning the residents reject their message, then they're not to stay. They are to move on. And more, 
when the day of judgment comes, that town, meaning the people, the people in it who rejected the, the good news the disciples brought of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, they will suffer a fate even worse than did the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So let's reread a portion of Matthew chapter 10. Open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start reading at verse 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that'll be page 1235, 1235. 1235. Starting at verse 15. Yes, I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Now pay attention. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, so to be so be as prudent as snakes and as harmless as doves. Be on guard, for there will be people who will hand you over to the local Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as a testimony to them and to the Goyim, to the nations. But when they bring you to trial, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. When the time comes, you will be given what you should say. For it will not be just you speaking, but the Spirit of your heavenly Father speaking through you. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father is child. Children will turn against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. But whoever holds out till the end will be preserved from harm. When you are persecuted in one town, run away to another. Yes, indeed, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A Talmud, a disciple, is not greater than his rabbi. A slave is not greater than his master. It's enough for a disciple that he become like his rabbi, a slave like his master. Now, if people have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? So do not fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be uncovered or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but are powerless to kill the soul. Rather fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenom. Aren't sparrows sold for next to nothing? two for an Assyrian, yet not one of them will fall to the ground without your father's consent. Now as for you, every hair on your head has been counted, so do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me in the presence of others, I will also acknowledge in the presence of my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Don't suppose that I have come to bring peace to the land. It's not peace I have come to bring, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, so that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Whoever loves his father and mother more than he loves me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than he loves me is not worthy of me. 
Anyone who does not take up his execution stake and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his own life will lose it, but the person who loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you is receiving me, and whoever receives me is receiving the one who sent me. Anyone who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive the reward a prophet gets. Anyone who receives a Sadiq, because he is a Sadiq, will receive the reward a Sadiq gets. Indeed, if someone gives you just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he's my disciple, yes, I tell you, he will certainly, certainly not lose his reward. In verse 16, Jesus continues by warning the disciples the conditions they're going to face on their missionary journeys. Back in chapter 7, He warned those listening to Him to be very wary of the wolves in sheep's clothing. That is, this was those who pretended to be one thing but were actually another. So deception was involved. Now in chapter 10, the warning is a little bit different. It is that the sheep, the disciples, are going to be among undisguised wolves. The disciples will be knowingly wandering into wolf territory. I'm going to remind you yet again, these are not Gentiles who are being characterized as the wolves because the disciples are not to leave the region of the Holy Land. So who are these wolves? They are the Jewish religious leadership, more specifically the synagogue leadership. So with this stark warning issued, Yeshua gives some sage advice. He says, be wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Now what does He mean by this? In his time, it was a proverb that serpents were considered to be very cunning. So if a person was like a serpent, it meant they were pretty shrewd. This was actually considered a positive attribute, rather admired among many, not a negative. It wasn't symbolic of being wicked. Yet they were also to be as harmless as doves. Now, the Greek word that the complete Jewish Bible translates to harmless is akarios. Literally, it means unmixed, means pure. It can also mean single minded. And so we're going to find some translations say simple. The way to think about the meaning is as a childlike approach to things. Children don't approach matters with a complexity of thought. They do it simply. So since the disciples are going to find themselves facing resistance when they are communicating with Jewish religious leadership who may not be interested in fairness or in honesty, wanting to hear another point of view, they must not be naive. They mustn't check their brains or common sense at the door, so to speak. They are to be acutely aware 
of who they're dealing with, the circumstances they encounter, and they should behave accordingly. Be shrewd in assessing the situation and in handling people, but temper that by staying focused on the single goal of spreading the good news. So what might happen to them on their missionary journeys? Well, they're going to find that some of the synagogues they go to visit are going to react harshly by having them flogged, even handing them over to the court on account of the good news they're bringing. The court is speaking of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious court, but nearly always it's the local courts and councils. It's not the one in Jerusalem. I want to remind you, the disciples are not at all proclaiming that Yeshua of Nazareth is Messiah, at least not in this, the first of their missionary assignments. They are, however, claiming that the Kingdom of God has arrived, and the implication in the Jewish theology of that day was this only happens when the Messiah reveals Himself and establishes that Kingdom. Now even so, the Gospel writer Matthew is not just writing from the viewpoint of when these things were happening. <clears throat> Since he was looking back in time, he already knew that some of the things that Christ prophesied were going to happen at a future time were not going to happen immediately after telling the disciples about these happenings. See, the bottom line is that all disciples of Christ are to expect some amount of suffering for their faith, for our faith. It doesn't matter at what point in history it might be, or who the disciples are, or where they are. Persecution goes with the territory of following Jesus. We shouldn't be surprised at it. One can't avoid it. But in the case of the original twelve, what are they going to be punished for having done? Matthew must have thought it so obvious he doesn't even bother to tell us. My speculation is <clears throat> that very likely in the following of the lead of their master, Yeshua, the twelve disciples didn't have nice things to say about the synagogue leaders or the traditions that they taught. Christ was very open about His disdain with that leadership and with their man-made doctrines and traditions that so distorted the truth of God's Word. Now remember that Yeshua characterized the Jews He encountered on His own Holy Land tour as lost sheep. And those who were supposed to be their shepherd leaders as wolves. Now let's be clear, the disciples were not visiting churches. They weren't establishing churches. These congregations of people were synagogues, of which there were many in the Holy Land, 
Most were not elaborate, not even dedicated buildings. The vast majority were just gatherings of Jews in public places, maybe somewhere under a tree. It could be just a few Jews meeting together, typically not fewer than ten. The word synagogue is much like the word church in that technically it has little to do with buildings. Rather, it has everything to do with an assembly of people. The Talmud reports that prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, as many as 400 synagogues existed only in the city of Jerusalem. Now, excavations there prove that if indeed there were that many of them, then it cannot possibly mean that at one time there existed 400 separate synagogue buildings in Jerusalem. The thing to understand is this. It is that whatever, whatever the form, there were many synagogues in the Holy Land, such that the disciples were not traveling very far between villages and synagogues. In fact, there were so many that Yeshua didn't have an expectation that they would somehow go visit them all. Now, verse 18 explains that in addition to the religious persecution that they were likely to face, they were also going to face politically based persecution. Thus, some of the disciples, says Christ, is going to stand before governors and before kings on account of their faith in Yeshua. It is agreed by nearly all Bible scholars that this prediction is rather general in its meaning in that it isn't necessarily directed only to the twelve disciples to whom he's speaking and only to evangelizing the Holy Land. This is kind of an all-inclusive, open-ended prophecy about what Messiah's disciples in all ages and all nations could expect. And as we look back historically, we're going to find Christ followers in very areas of the globe being both religiously and politically persecuted for their faith. You know, we've not really been subject to it in America or in Europe for a very long time until recently. Circumstances are changing for us. Yet in God's providence, Yeshua's followers are not to despair of such a thing and we're not to fear it. The last half of verse 18 explains that such persecutions are going to offer us an opportunity, an opportunity to speak truth to power. We get a fine example of that in Paul as he is arrested and he's brought before the Roman governors Felix and then Festus, whereby they want to understand. What is it about Christ and this messianic faith that drives Paul? Well, Yeshua characterizes being brought before governors and kings, in other words, various religious and political authorities, as divine moments of God's providence in order to penetrate those secular halls of justice and government with the gospel truth. Not only governors and kings, but also Gentiles 
will hear the disciples' testimony, we're told. It is the Greek word ethnos that is being translated as Gentiles. In some Bible versions, pagan is used. It isn't necessarily wrong. But see, it's missing the larger point that Matthew's making. Ethnos means large, identifiable groups of people in a rather general way. The complete Jewish Bible translates ethnos using the familiar Hebrew word goyim. And that really is a bit better because it means both Gentiles and nations. The translation that fits best with modern English in getting across what Jesus is saying is nations, especially since in the Bible nations are always groups of people who are Gentiles. So the idea is that from this moment on into some indefinite future, an irony is going to occur. Government officials will persecute followers of Yeshua by arresting them and then forcing them to defend their faith. However, their faithful testimonies will then provide the vehicle that spreads the good news to all the nations on earth. Now, some of the reason that this is needed is to save myriads from eternal death. The other reason is to condemn the remainder to eternal darkness. What we must not lose track of is that it all begins with Israel and the Jewish people and only 12 Jewish disciples. I would imagine that these 12 disciples were pretty alarmed at what they were hearing. So now Jesus offers what amounts to comfort. He says that even though this may happen, they're not to worry, especially as it concerns an ordinary citizen being brought before these powerful leaders of government. Such a prospect you know, could make the best of us intimidated and tongue-tied. So Yeshua says, don't fret about what it is that they or we are going to say. It will be given to us. See, we in the West, we're used to the idea that if we're brought before a judge in court, we'll have someone trained in speaking for us, present to do just that. In ancient times, no such provision existed, except perhaps for the wealthy. How will the right words then be given to the disciples? Verse 20 says, it will be given through the Spirit of your Father. What does this mean exactly? What might it have meant to Christ's disciples? To begin, the Jews of that day would have taken the term Spirit of your Father to mean Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh in their Hebrew language. Yet how would this giving of the right words happen? How exactly could they acquire it? All during His ministry on earth, only Yeshua was seen as the living container of God's Holy Spirit. This would not change. 
until after the resurrection upon Pentecost. So once again, <clears throat> Yeshua seems to be speaking in a general, if not sweeping way, that incorporates various eras of redemption history. That is, <clears throat> not everything He is saying will necessarily apply to His twelve disciples, but rather to other disciples at other times. So Yeshua is likely borrowing His thoughts on this matter, although in a kind of ambiguous way, about the end times that the prophet Joel prophesied. In Joel 3.1 we read, After this I will pour out My Spirit on all humanity. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And yet, Messiah Yeshua certainly seemed to be promising the Spirit of your Father to fall upon His twelve disciples in some unexplained way. Might we assume that since in verse 1 of chapter 10 that Yeshua gives authority to this twelve to heal people, people, exercise demons, even raise the dead, that this would necessarily include some manner of them possessing the Holy Spirit, because these are all things Jesus did, and now He extends those abilities to the Twelve. I would be remiss if I also didn't point out the source of the Holy Spirit and who He is intended to be identified with. According to Jesus, who is it? The Father. The Spirit of your Father. Now I want to pause here for a moment for a detour. In order to discuss something that may be bothering you, is that it has bothered so many over the years and over the ages. The reality is that in general, we cannot say that the twelve disciples Christ is speaking to were ever brought before governors and kings to defend themselves, other than perhaps for John and Peter, although that's mostly an implication. We weren't, we aren't aware of the Holy Spirit giving them words to say in their defense. In the next several verses, the trials and the persecutions that Jesus says His followers will experience get more and more serious. He will also say a few other things that don't seem to have come to pass in His lifetime which a plain reading of His words seem to indicate they will. Modern Bible academics put this a little differently. If some of Yeshua's prophecies did not come to pass during His lifetime, as He seems to be promising, is He not the very definition of a false prophet? Or maybe as a failed prophet? as much as this accusation jolts us, we can't just dismiss it without a thoughtful rebuttal. But what could that thoughtful rebuttal be? Well, I want to discuss this because a doubter may confront you with just such a question, and it can be pretty unsettling. 
such an academic viewpoint that Jesus was in some ways a failed prophet, isn't that hard to reach in nominal Christianity. Because the Bible is approached in what I term as a Greek mindset. That is, in the Greek mode of thinking, things must occur serially, one thing after another, and for each question of Bible interpretation or problem, there must be one clear overriding solution, solution such that all other possibilities are wrong. Jews, on the other hand, have always approached the Bible differently, understanding that there are levels of meaning involved in the Scriptures. The reason for that is the Bible is God-inspired work. It's not mere human-inspired literature. Thus, Jewish sages and scholars created a system that defines four observable levels of meaning in Scripture. They named those levels Peshat, Remez, Drash, and Sod. Uh, let me say up front, this does not mean that God intended that His Word was a code and that there would be precisely four levels of meaning to decipher it. The Jewish system is but a learned, man-made structure that was created both as a recognition of the amazing mystery of God's Word and as a means for God's worshipers to try to plumb its depths. It is by no means an infallible system, nor is it actually usually promoted as such, but it is a valuable tool. It's a tool that allows us to think of the Bible sort of three-dimensionally, if not four, by adding in the dimension of time, instead of only two. Although another system of interpretive Bible study might come along someday that's better, it is my opinion that this is the best one that is currently available to us. I've taught on this before. So, you can look it up in a number of the Bible books that we've posted on TorahClass.com. But briefly, the hierarchy is that Pshat is the plain, literal, most simple and straightforward sense of what you read. Remez is a hint. It's a strong implication of something deeper, something more profound. Drash gets into application of a passage of Scripture that upon a simple reading didn't at first seem apparent, and sowed means secret, so it involves great mystery. Therefore, at best, we have only a shadowy glimpse of something. Now, speaking in these levels and studying the Scriptures based on these named various levels was not yet known in Christ's day. However, even then the Jews did not box themselves in with rigid either-or, yes-no answers to hard questions as concerned God. They especially understood that God Himself is a mysterious entity, that humans have but the most limited way to comprehend. 
And so room was left for flexibility in interpretation. Here's where I'm going with this. Especially as concerns God's laws and commands and prophecies and Christ's, Christ's utterances and His instructions, we cannot approach them based on the same way we approach mere literature. For one reason, as history has unfolded, the truth of the ancient biblical prophecies and wisdom of its teaching has proved immutable. Even if many people simply just deny it out of hand due to darkened minds and hardened hearts. So, as we read in Matthew 10 about Christ's instructions to his disciples and about what they're going to encounter, those utterances are divine and they have a certain mystery to them. Yeshua will speak prophetically, and those prophecies will come to pass in one way in one era, another way in another era. And in some cases that involve the end times, they will occur in ways that are difficult for us to imagine at this point in redemption history. So our approach needs to be to do not doubt, don't doubt, but rather uncover and discover. We shall do our best. So with that mindset, let's get back now to verse 20. Yeshua promises that the Spirit of your Father, the Holy Spirit, will be there for the disciples, but He doesn't explain how. In hindsight, we can see that in whatever way it was for the original twelve, it was going to be different for His followers after Pentecost. From that point forward, the Holy Spirit would inhabit believers and always be there for them, for us, in every circumstance. Now, verse 21 clearly changes course. And we have Christ speaking about the end times. But while we think about the end times as something future to us, the disciples believe. They were already experiencing the end times. Can you put yourself in their shoes? So they would have taken Christ's words about strife and division within families as something to expect immediately. Now, we look at those words, and and, and many of us in modern times have experienced such family splits over. Christ, especially if one is a Jew. In modern times in the West, none of us want family strife and division, but it is probably as likely to happen as not for most folks. It isn't quite the crisis as it was in biblical times because in the West, families are organized into small units instead of as it was in the first century. Back then, Middle Eastern families were what we today call extended families. That is, multiple generations not only lived together, but
But typically, the senior family member had real authority over the younger ones. It was also a male head of household dominated society. So should the father of a family become a believer in Yeshua, it was generally automatic that those in his household also became believers, or at least they outwardly practiced whatever it was the senior head of the household demanded would be practiced. So Jewish families splitting up over the issue of becoming a follower of Yeshua was not very likely in the years when Yeshua was still alive and for some time following His death and His resurrection. But once this faith got extended into the Gentile population, family strife and division would indeed become a serious issue, such that Paul had to address it head on. And once Gentiles gained firm control of the church early in the second century, and Christianity was reformatted into a Gentiles only religion, then a Jew who became a believer almost certainly faced a family crisis as they would have been viewed as a traitor to Judaism. Thus, the fulfillment of Yeshua's prophecy about family strife on account of Him would begin nearly imperceptibly, but over time it would become a harsh reality. Today it's very nearly a rule of thumb for Jews, and it regularly happens within Gentile families. But as we progress towards the culmination of the end times, a person becoming a believer will not only be certain to cause family division, it's going to become dangerous. Folks, what Christ says is coming is not hyperbole. It has happened already in isolated cases, especially in places where a different religion is the norm and no challenge to it is allowed such as in Hinduism or Shintoism or especially Islam. Listen carefully to what he says about the destiny of families as the end of days gets nearer. In Matthew 10.21, a brother will betray his brother to death, and a father is child. Children will turn against their parents and have them put to death. What Yeshua is prophesying is far more than something we would call family strife. It's homicide. This entire verse, verse 21, this entire verse is about a family member having another family member put to death because that family member has chosen to trust Christ. Can't happen in America? Can't happen in Europe? Look around you! Goodness! Little of what we see happening in 2020. The violent demonstrations, the seizing of city centers by anarchists with the cooperation of, of, of mayors and governors. 
the outright demonization of Christianity by the mainstream media. The demand that all citizens conform to whatever political correctness rules the day or be shunned or blacklisted. This couldn't have been imagined even a decade ago. So what Yeshua said would happen to His followers is in process. And as His believers, we need to pull our collective heads out of the sand and to prepare ourselves mentally, tangibly, and most importantly, spiritually. And as Yeshua is emphasizing, we need to let those who are not followers know the truth so they might become followers. That is, see, th this is the primary mission of Seed of Abraham Ministries and all of our currently five various ministry operations. And I pray that's at the top of your priority list as well. As well. well, verse 22 offers an obvious generalization that everyone will hate Yeshua's disciples. But what we can take from this is that just as in the beginning of His ministry it was a relatively small minority of people who made a decision to trust Yeshua, so it will be as history charges towards its end. Everyone, meaning the majority, will hate believers. But, and now for a combination of instruction and encouraging promise, everyone, believers, who holds on until the end will be preserved from harm. What end? Clearly the end times. How will believers be preserved from harm? It will be different for different subsets of people. The book of Revelation chapter 12 speaks of a time of great persecution when the woman, Israel, will flee into the desert for 1,260 days where the Israelites will be divinely protected and cared for. On the other hand, we also read of the evil actions of the Antichrist who will persecute all God-worshippers, and countless believers will be martyred. We all know of stories of missionaries who were tortured and murdered for their faith. So what can it mean that they who hold on until the end will be preserved from harm? It can only mean spiritual harm, not physical harm. Verse 28, by the way, of the same chapter is going to address this. But what we must understand is that for the time being, there's no truly safe haven for believers. And our attempt to create one is going to prove futile. Now that doesn't mean that we don't establish oases of spiritual refuge here on earth where we can meet in peace, or we can lead our children and grandchildren in Christ's love, and provide an alternative to the hollow secular society we live in. But whatever we create can be attacked by government or by religious authorities, and according to Christ, it's going to be. So our job 
is to do all we can while the doing of it is possible, because someday it won't be. From there forward, we are to just, our job is to just cling tightly to our faith. Now, step back and consider this for a moment. I'm quite sure that some of you are thinking, wow, what a downer you are today. I mean, that's pretty bleak stuff, Tom. I mean, can't you talk about some fun and positive things that are going to happen in the future? I probably could. That's not all, not at all what we're reading about in Christ's admission, admonitions to his 12 disciples. I mean, think about it. I asked you to think about it, to put yourself in their shoes. How do you suppose they took all of this? They sure weren't hopping up and down with pleasure and joy. Because that's not how Jesus intended it. I can only imagine his solemn tone of voice. They weren't thinking that the things Yeshua described were going to happen to somebody else. Not to them. Or that it would occur in some indefinite time in the future. But they probably wouldn't have to concern themselves with it. They believed their master. And they were going to set out expecting this to be a dangerous and difficult journey. But most Christians I talk to do think the perils they read about in the end times is for others, but not for them. They can't picture themselves facing much of any of this. See, it's only that it's customary in the evangelical branches of the church to talk about believers living today in the end times. But in their heart of hearts, they don't really expect to experience the things Jesus warns us about to any great extent. Put a finer point on it. What do you believe? Think about that for a second. What do you believe? Do you believe we are living in or on the cusp of the end times? Do you? Well, so, does the reality of your choices and how you live reflect that belief? Does it? And do, does how you give, how you support your ministry, lend truth to your claim? How about your spiritual priorities? Because if what you say to yourself that you believe isn't backed up with your actions, then I challenge that you actually believe what you say or perhaps think you believe. You know, I can tell you this from personal experience. Those of us who have lived in Florida for a few years do not doubt the warnings of hurricanes and what it can mean for us. You know, so we prepare appropriately for it. You know, I have a vivid memory of when we first moved here and really had no idea what a hurricane does. 
and what major disruptions that it causes. I was not at all prepared and really didn't even think much about it till I experienced one. No power, nowhere to buy food, nowhere to get gas. It was pretty eye-opening. After that, I became a true believer. <laughs> I bought a generator. I made sure I had a couple of weeks of food and water stored away. I filled my gas cans and my car two or three days out. It looked like a hurricane was going to hit. I planned an evacuation route and more. In other words, I modified my usual behavior because of my sincere belief, my faith, if you would, that a hurricane was coming and knowing without a doubt what that would do when it hits. It is the same idea for believers in the end times. Our response may not involve storing up food and water right now, but folks, if you truly believe you are going to experience some of the things Jesus is warning you about, you're going to change your normal behavior. If you haven't, then you don't actually believe it's going to affect you. You don't believe it. You say you do, but you don't. Jacob, usually called James, Yeshua's biological brother, put it this way in James 2, 14-17. What good is it, my brothers, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such faith able to save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes, without daily food, and someone says to him, Shalom, keep warm, eat hearty without giving him what he needs. What good does that do? Thus, faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. Yeshua spent much of his ministry on earth telling people what was coming, how to prepare for it on multiple levels, spiritually and physically. Few did, few ever will. I just pray that you will not be one of them. Verse 23 is one of the more complicated verses in Matthew's Gospel. The first half is, is quite straightforward. Should the disciples encounter persecution, they are under no obligation to stay there and suffer it. Rather, there are plenty of towns and synagogues in Judea and the Galilee to go to and to continue their work. It's the last half of the verse where the problem lies. It says, they will not finish visiting all the cities around Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is a real head-scratcher. And so there are a number of opinions among Bible scholars as to what this means. And we're not going to cover them all. Believe me, there's a lot of them. But we will take a look at some of the more prominent conclusions. The first thought is actually one that has application that goes beyond this verse. It is, the, it is whether we are to take the term Son of Man as it we, appears in, and as it is meant in Daniel 7, 
or are we to take it in its more common usage, where it merely means human being? In other words, for whatever reason, did Christ say, Son of Man, but He just could, as easily could have said, I or Me. He just likes saying the Son of Man. The second thought is that Christ never really used that term. It was Matthew that was trying to make that connection. The book of Daniel was immensely popular among Jews in the first century for the same reason that in the 21st century the book of Revelation is so popular among Christians. The Jews felt that Daniel spoke about the kingdom of God in the end times and that they were living in that time due to the occupation um, of Rome. Today, Christians see a world in shambles, and so we feel the Revelation answers some questions about the end times that many feel we're in. A third thought is that the Son of Man is indeed about a special person that makes an appearance in the, uh, in the end times, but Jesus wasn't Him. In fact, when He speaks of the Son of Man in verse 23, it is Jesus' expectation of the arrival of a mysterious Son of Man. I could go on, but these are going to have to suffice. See, the reason for these rather odd, usually rigid viewpoints is what we talked about earlier. It's the result of the typical Christian approach to the Bible in the Greek thinking mode. But if we approach it in the Hebrew manner, in the manner of looking at that statement at its various levels and its depths, then we don't have to make a choice that only one of these or another viewpoints is right and the others are wrong. In the hindsight that we've been afforded, it's not hard to see that Jesus sees Himself as the one like a Son of Man from Daniel, and that Daniel is one of Christ's main sources for end times prophecies, Matthew 24. 15 through 16. So when you see the abomination that causes devastation spoken of through the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand the illusion, that will be the time for those in Judah to escape to the hills. And then just a few verses down from that, in verse 30, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, all the tribes of the land will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. Look. This is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7. So it's pretty far-fetched to claim that first, the Son of Man is not a reference to the one like a Son of Man in Daniel. Second, that all Jesus ever means by saying Son of Man is I or me. And third, that while there will be an end time Son of Man, um, it's Christ. But even this doesn't solve everything. What does he mean when he says, the Son of Man will come before the disciples finish evangelizing all the towns of Israel? I see a couple of possibilities, and both may be true. 
First, the job of evangelizing Israel never ends. There will be hundreds and hundreds of cities and towns and villages and synagogues in the Holy Land in Christ's day, and at least a million Jews. There had to have been. Probably a lot more. There was no way those twelve disciples were ever going to preach in every one of them to every last individual. So we don't take a map of Israel, create or anywhere, and create grids, evangelize the squares of the grid, and then mark them off as a mission accomplished. One proof of this is the striking fact that in none of the Gospels regarding sending out the Twelve does it ever speak of them coming back. In other words, until the Son of Man, the Messiah, returns, the work must continue. Second, while Christ was speaking directly about evangelizing Israel, soon those going out from Israel would venture into the Gentile nations. And that job, obviously, is far larger than taking the good news only to the Holy Land. And as with the first suggestion, this evangelizing mission is to continue regardless of how thoroughly we may think it's already been done. We can rest from these efforts, often referred to in Christianity as the, the Great Commission, only when the Son of Man Yeshua returns and ushers His followers into the Millennial Kingdom of God. Okay, we'll begin next week at verse 24.